do come to you now and we ask as we open your word to this portion of your book uh, in the letter to the Romans that you would fill our hearts with gladness this morning as we contemplate your kindness shown to sinners as we consider the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ which is the only way that we can be made right with you we can have a right relationship with you so we are thankful for this portion of scripture that will be in we pray that the spirit would have freedom to work it into each of our lives as we need it maybe that's encouragement maybe that's a, some conviction maybe that is just a, a, a building up of our faith whatever it is lord you know what we need so we trust that you'd use it as you see fit to your glory and honor we pray this in christ's great name amen so turn to romans chapter 3 been a couple weeks since we were in this section just kind of remind you review is good brief review is maybe better at this point but we're in this letter written by Paul to a church long ago but it's written to us in the same way in this letter called the book of Romans or the epistle to the Romans is Paul's full detailed explanation of the most fantastic message ever given to the world. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of the gospel is stated right in chapter 1, where he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, or how to have a right relationship with God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written in the Old Testament and applied in the new, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he sets out in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20 to demonstrate why we need God's righteousness, why we need the gospel. It is because, one word, condemnation. Every person stands condemned before God. They enter into this world condemned before God as sinners. They are sinners three times over. They are sinners in that they, by virtue of Adam acting for the human race, when he sinned, brought sin into everyone's life. Imputed sin of Abraham to our account. And, or Adam. And then, secondly, they are sinners by virtue of birth. We are, we're born sinners. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He didn't mean that the act of sexual intercourse was sinful. He meant that he was conceived in sin. He was in the womb a sinner. He had a sin nature that had been passed down from parent to child. And that's been true ever since Adam and Eve. And then third, we, we all sin. <laughs> we don't become sinners by sinning. We are already sinners and we act out what we already are by nature. Children of wrath, even as the rest, as Paul put in Ephesians 2. So we stand condemned before God. Now, that, that's not a popular message today because everyone wants to see God as God is a God of love and he just loves people so much and he just wants to help them and he wants them to have the best life and, and all of that. And and God is love, and God does love the, the, the world of sinners, and he does want the best life, but it is not at the cost of just forgetting their sin. They stand condemned. And, and, and God is angry. And in fact, and I was thinking of Psalm 5 this morning where it says, God is angry with the wicked every day. 
And if they do not turn back, he will sharpen his sword and he will bend his bow and he will shoot his arrows at the wicked and they will die for their sin. Just as God had told Adam in the day that you eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, die and you will surely die. And that's been the case for mankind ever since Adam sinned. So we all stand condemned. And that doesn't matter whether we're these vile pagan offenders that we might all agree is like, oh, those are wicked people, horrible people. I don't know that there would ever be agreement like that today in our world, but let's just say that there's that agreement. All these people, they're idolaters, they're pagan, they sacrifice their children, they do all this evil stuff, and they exchange the glory of God for the lie and all of that wicked. Oh, they deserve God's condemnation, his holy wrath. And in chapter 2, he says, yeah, it's not just them. It's the self-righteous religious people who are just as guilty before God, stand condemned before God, because the truth is they practice the same things. It may not be the same actions, but it's the same attitude. It's the same heart full of sin. So everyone stands condemned before God. That's where he ends the first section. We're in the beautiful second major section of the letter, starting in Chapter 3, verse 21, going all the way through chapter 5 and 21. And one word describes it, justification. Condemnation in the first section. Justification in the second section. Justification, we talked about it in, in these 10 verses that are just deep and deep and really, really deep about what God has done to bring salvation or a right relationship with him to sinners It's wrapped up in the word justification. And justification, we talked about this. It does not mean that God sees me as though I'd never sinned. Well, God can never see any of us that way because we all are sinners. We have sinned, so God would be playing a mind game with himself if, if that's what it meant to be justified. No, it doesn't mean that. Justification does not mean to be made righteous like we believe in, in Christ and boom, I'm a righteous dude now. No, it's not. We're not made righteous. We are declared righteous. This term justification is a legal term. It's it's in the law courts. We talked about that, that God is the judge, and we're at the defense table. Jesus is our advocate, and Satan's the prosecutor, and it's a scene in a courtroom where God is declaring all people guilty. But we can be declared righteous. And that's what justification is talking about. It's not, a, it's not a quality of life that God suddenly gives us, but it is what has been imputed or reckoned or counted to us. It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account where God takes our sin and imputes it to Christ's account. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's imputation, a theological term I know, but it's, it's not hard to understand. You have a credit card, debit card? You have an account, and things get paid to it, that's credited to your account. And that's what imputation is. And God credits the righteousness to our account. That's justification. Justification is not a state of being, but rather a standing that we have before the Lord. So, We come to our passage one more time, and I'm going to read through these verses, 21 through 31, and then we'll continue on. Romans 3, 21 and following. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the, the law by this faith? <laughs> by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it, uphold the law. So in this section that is doing uh, kind of the deep dive into justification, we've already talked about two things that come out of this passage. And the first of those is that justification is not by works of the law. Again, look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Or let's say, but now how to have a right relationship with God has been made known or shown or manifested apart from the law even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So justification is apart from the law. It has nothing to do with the law. It, it is like oil and justification is water. The law is oil and justification. You cannot mix the two. You cannot blend them together. Law has nothing to do with our justification. In fact, the law declares us guilty is what it does. And that's all it could do. It could never justify anyone because no one could ever keep the law perfectly. Everyone breaks the law, the law being the moral requirements of God to be right with him. Everyone breaks that, falls short of his glory. As verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of his glory. Therefore, we're all guilty be, be through the law. But the righteousness of God can come to us, a right relationship with God can be ours, it's just apart from the law. It has nothing to do with law works or good works or being a good person. Secondly, we saw justification comes through faith in Christ alone. Look at verse 22 and 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So the right relationship with God, being declared righteous in the eyes of God, comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we, we, we must understand that even that faith is not something that is generated from within us. Faith is, uh, I explained this to you, that faith is like a, the, the means or the method or it's like a tube, if you will, that God sends his righteousness through to us when he imputes it. Faith is just the means by which we receive the righteousness of God. It is not something that is generated from within us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 
uh, 2.8, a lot of you know this verse, for by grace are you saved through faith, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. The truth is, if it was by law works, what would we do? We would boast. I'm better than you are. I get a better relationship with God. Or I'm in and you're out because God grades on the curve. And it's not of works. Otherwise, we would boast. And God will not have any boasting done in his presence. But it's not just the salvation as a whole that is a gift of God. It is even the faith which is a gift of God. It's not within us. It must be given to us as a gift. Philippians 1 says that it has been granted to us to believe in Christ. It's been given to us, gifted to us to believe. So even this method or this means by which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us is a gift by God. If he didn't give us that gift, there'd be no imputation of the righteousness of Christ to our account. Praise him. So, justification is not by works of the law. Justification is only by faith in Christ, as those verses said. Now, we're picking up where we left off with number three. The third thing about justification that comes out of this passage that's so important, and that is that justification... The source of justification is the grace of God. The source of justification is the grace of God. This is beautiful, isn't it? From the tragedy of the human predicament, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and no one can be justified by works of the law, and all stand guilty before God and are condemned. From the the predicament of that human tragedy, Paul moves to the triumph of God's work on behalf of sinners. I mean, it's beautiful. People, he says, who can't be justified by works of the law are justified or are declared righteous before God. (laughs) Wow. Here's some good words. By his grace as a gift. Right? Look at that verse again. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. So God's declaration of us being right with him does not come as any merit on our part, even the exercise of faith, as we've described. God gives it out of his grace and not our deservedness, not our worthiness. A lot of people talk that way. It's like, well, I I just don't feel worthy. You never would be worthy. I just don't think I deserve it. You never could deserve it. It isn't out of our merit. It isn't out of our worth. It isn't out of our deservedness. No, it is by grace as a gift. And so God gives his grace, not out of our deservedness. And that's emphasized in this phrase two ways. First, it's given as a gift, he says. It's given as a gift, or some translations have freely. It means the same thing. It's given as a gift, or it's given freely. No cost to us, right? No cost to us. Costly to God, but no cost to us. Not, and it's not something that is earned, which is kind of built into the human psyche that we get what we earn in life. Every other religion teaches that. Life kind of teaches that, that from the get-go, that we get what we deserve. And uh, no, we don't get what we deserve from God. Praise <laughs> yeah, praise God that we don't. 
So first, it's given as a gift or given freely. And secondly, is this term grace, which points to the free, unmerited favor of God, to the generous goodness of God uh, towards sinners. Wow, that is a packed little phrase, isn't it? By his grace as a gift. Now, listen, it is important to consider that God would not graciously declare sinners right before him without an objective basis, without dealing with their sin. That's what that means. He, there's an objective basis for his grace. It's not our deservedness, it's not our worthiness, but there still is an objective basis for him declaring guilty sinners righteous in his eyes. See, God's holiness would not allow him to forgive sinners without his wrath toward their sin being dealt with. God couldn't just say, oh well, everyone's a sinner, I just let, I'll let that slide. His holiness, his righteousness, his justice would not allow that. So, God's holiness would not allow him to forgive sinners without their sin being dealt with. And, and, and while justification could not come through law works, his holy wrath towards sin still needed to be satisfied. And this is where grace comes in. This is why it's a gift. So the source of justification, according to this verse, is grace. God giving sinners what they could never deserve, and then he gives us the basis the objective basis for that grace, it is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Get that? And grace does have a basis. It's not in us, it's in God and what he did. And that is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus through his shed blood. God's grace then is tied to, absolutely tied to, redemption. Redemption. And this brings us to the second important term in these verses that we need to talk about. The first was justification, right? Justification, we've already dealt with that. Now we're to the second important word in the text, redemption. And this word brings us into the imagery of the slave market. We talked about how justification brought us into the imagery of the law court. We're, we're changing scenes now. We're moving into the imagery of the marketplace, the, the basic meaning of the word redemption was this. It was to buy or to buy back, whether as a purchase or as a ransom. Here again, we think of this word most often in theological terms, right? We don't use it a lot outside of theology today. It used to be used more that way, where you would have, uh, when I was a kid, there was S&H green stamps that you would collect, and then you could go down to the grocery store and redeem something with those stamps. And you didn't think of theology when you did that. You just thought, I got to go buy some candy or something like that. But that word used to be more common. Now we tend to think of it only in theological terms, but it had its origin, the Greek, the Greek term that is, terms that are used had its origin actually in the release of prisoners of war after a ransom was paid for them to be released. And then it was extended to include the freeing of slaves, again, through a payment of a price. 
So what Paul's saying here, and in many other passages, is, is that God redeemed sinners through the blood of his son as the purchase price. The ransom price which purchased every sinner who believed from their slavery to sin. Isn't this what Jesus actually said in Mark ten forty five, where he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a redemption for others, for sinners, ransom for many. And Peter likewise wrote about it, saying, Knowing that you were ransomed, or redeemed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. So the imagery then that we have is that sinners are held in captivity to sin, from which only a payment of a ransom, a a redemption, can set them free. And the ransom was nothing less than the sacrificial death of the Son of God. Think of what Chris was sharing out of the scriptures. That was it. I mean, those verses were just absolutely kind of an extension of what Paul is saying in these verses. So the the world is seen as a slave market of sin, and sinners are slaves under the control and dominion of the evil tyrant sin. But Jesus, but Jesus came and he paid the price, that ransom price, and redeemed those who have believed by giving his own life for them. Redemption is pretty great. Redemption's pretty great. Now listen, there's two different Greek word groups um, used in various and compound forms in the New Testament that inform us of this wonderful truth that is so tied to our being declared righteous in the sight of God. And these words combined, uh, these word groups combined, emphasize three things. The first of them is this. That, number one, we've been bought and taken out of the slave market of sin. That's the first word group. We've been bought and taken out of the slave market of sin. Second, another word group emphasizes that we've been released or set free from the penalty and the dominion, the power of sin. And then the third and final word group indicates that we now belong to God because he purchased us with that price. Now, just as a side note, it should be noted as you're reading through the New Testament, you read about redemption, and now you understand what redemption is, this purchase price paid to to free us from slavery to sin, that nowhere does it say, where the price was paid or to whom it was paid. Some people think that it was paid to Satan, like he had, he had this bill that said, oh, you, you owe me, and God had to pay Satan for our sal- salvation. Nowhere does it say that or even imply that. In fact, it should be understood as the price that had to be paid to cancel the debt of sin that we owed to God. The debt was owed to God, not to Satan. And Chris read a passage from Colossians chapter 2 where it says that certificate of debt 
written against us, was taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The debt was owed to God. And God paid the debt to himself that we might be redeemed. Hmm. Let me see if I can illustrate this. Um, these ideas about the redemption of sinners. Let's say that you're an animal lover. And we have any animal lovers in our group? I know that we do. And uh, let's say particularly that you love dogs, as, as many do. More people love dogs than cats, which is totally understandable. <laughs> I mean, completely understandable, right? So, uh, you're a dog lover, but you don't own a dog. And so one day you decide that you're going to get a dog, but you want to do a really nice thing. So you go down to the PP. That's the puppy prison. You know, euphemistically known as the animal shelter. And you, you go to the puppy prison and you view all the dogs who are locked up in their little jail cells. Right? They're, they're in their cages there. And as you go by... Each of the little cages, you know, they're looking up at you, and it sounds like, or it feels like they're all crying out, somebody help me, please, somebody help me, deliver me. And it just pulls on your heart. Here's this poor little creature that was created to be loved and to run around and frolic, but it's held in custody. It's in a little cage, unable to fulfill its purpose in life. Which is not to enjoy life, but help you enjoy life. Well, your sights are finally set on one particular dog, and you go to the counter and you pay for it. You redeem that precious little puppy. And once you've paid the ransom price, I'm sure you would not do this walk right out the door and leave. No, you wouldn't do that. You, you would get the puppy and take it out of the puppy prison. You would take it with you. You want to deliver it from its bondage and its probable death. When you get home, you let it out of the car. And, and what do you say? There you are, little puppy. You're such a cute little puppy. There you are. Now you're a free little puppy. Yeah, that's true. And you, you, you want the dog to be free, but the puppy needs to understand a few things, and part of that is it's not free to do whatever it wants to do, right? Example, you wouldn't allow it to relieve itself wherever it wants to relieve itself. You don't want little puppy poop all over your house. You don't even want it in your yard. You wish you could train it to go in the toilet, but that, yeah, that's just not going to work, so you you know that you have a responsibility to pick up the puppy poop and all of that. But it's not free to do whatever it wants to do. It's not free to chew on your shoes or any other items of clothing that may be within its reach. It's not free to do that. Uh, it's not free to sit at the table with you and your family and eat dinner with you. Well, it shouldn't be. Uh, some people may do that, but I don't... I, I'm not sure that's within my realm of thinking even. But you, you, you don't allow it to do whatever it wants to do. And you don't want your puppy to run out of the house and then go out of the yard and run into the street and be run over by a car and killed. I mean, you didn't, you didn't purchase the puppy to set it free to die. You, you set it free to live, right? So 
The point is that you bought that dog because you had compassion on it. And, and you desire the very best life possible for it. It, it now belongs to you. And it must understand that it, while it is free, it is not free to do whatever it wants. It's free to do what you want it to do. Every dog owner should know that, right? It's, it's free to do what you want it to do. And it, it's that way because you own it. It's your possession. So do you see how this relates into what God has done for us through redemption? Hopefully that will give you a little bit of a more human picture to it. God looked down from heaven and he saw our sorry state. We were all in our little cells under the dominion of evil tyrant sin. And, and God wanted to set us free so that we wouldn't have to face certain death. He had compassion on us and he paid the ransom price for us by giving his own son to die in our place. And he redeemed us and he took us out of captivity to sin and he did so to set us free from the penalty and power of sin. But our freedom is not a freedom to do whatever we want, whatever we please to do. No, our freedom is a freedom to do what he wants us to do. That's part of what redemption is all about. In the words of Paul elsewhere, he put it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were redeemed, same Greek word, redeemed with the price. So glorify God in your body. Listen also to Galatians 5.1, which says, For freedom and Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's slavery of sin. And then he says in verse 13 of, of Galatians 5, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You see, our redemption was very costly to God. It was purposeful. He wanted to set us free from sin's dominion. And he wanted to set us free to enjoy life as he intended it to be. And that life was not intended to be lived like we may desire to live it or for our own pleasure, but rather for his glory and honor. That's redemption. This is the grace of God. The objective basis for the grace of God is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> Praise him for his redemption. Number four, the fourth thing about justification in this passage is the basis of justification is the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. That's verses 25 and 26, where it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So while justification was given as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, it was very costly for God and his son. It was a gift to us, but it was costly for God. 
And Paul describes how the purchase price for the forgiveness of sin was made. That's what verse 25 is telling us. God put forward Christ Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this brings us into the third important theological term in this section, propitiation. Justification was the imagery of the law courts. Redemption, imagery of the the marketplace. Propitiation draws us into the imagery of the temple grounds, into the worship of the Lord. Now, this word propitiation, uh, it's, it's not translated that way in all of our, our uh, all of the versions which may uh, be before us. I mean, there's difficulties associated with this expression that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. And, and, the, and we can tell that there's difficulties associated with it because of the number of translations of the Greek term that is used here, the word hilasterion. You don't need to write that down. It's translated as propitiation in the King James, the uh, ESV and the New American Standard, in, in the CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible, and the NET, the New English Translation. It's, it's mercy seat. And then in the NIV, which some people read, it is the sacrifice of atonement. So you've got propitiation, you've got mercy seat, and you've got sacrifice of atonement in these various translations. Now part of the, part of the difficulty with this word is that propitiation itself, that English word, is neither well known or well used in modern times. And so some of the translations, I think, have attempted to make it more understandable by inserting other words. And there's reasons that they do it. It's not like it's just taken out of the air and they're not necessarily trying to water it down. But I do think that it can miss some important elements when we think about what God has done. This costly thing that God did for us to redeem us. So this word propitiation and its varied forms are, are, are found very infrequently in the New Testament, only a handful of times. But it's used a lot in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's translated in a variety of ways depending on the context. So I'm going to kind of go through that a little bit and ask you to follow along with me. So in the Old Testament, one, one of the uh, form, one form of this word group was translated ex- almost exclusively as mercy seat. It, it's the same way it's translated in the New Testament, in Hebrews 9 and verse 5, the mercy seat. Now, if you don't know it, if you've read your Old Testament, you should know this, but the mercy seat was that article of furniture that was in the Holy of Holies. It was the tabletop to the Ark of the Covenant, that, that piece of tabletop that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where once a year, just once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood to make atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. Did you get that just once a year? Sinful men could be in his presence. Just one time a year, day of atonement. So it represented, the mercy seat represented the one place where holy God could meet with sinful men because the high priest represented sinful 
men, not just himself as a sinner, but others as well. So because a blood sacrifice was made and then blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, God could then meet with the high priest without killing him, without striking him dead. And what, what happened there was very important. I mean, only when a blood sacrifice was made on the Day of, the, day of Atonement and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat could the high priest, the sinful man, enter into the presence of God. Now listen, beautifully, this is so beautiful, and Chris kind of hinted at this as well. The mercy seat, the blood sacrifice, the, 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 goat, the, the goat that was sacrificed and the goat that was taken out in the wilderness and released on the Day of Atonement. Both the mercy seat and the sacrifice and the blood and the high priest all were pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were all pictured, pictures of the, what the Lord Jesus would be. Jesus fulfilled all things, all things pictured and, uh, and, and pertaining to the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was the tabernacle, or later the temple. Jesus was the high priest. Jesus was the sacrifices. Jesus was the, the candelabra. He was the table of showbread. He was the, the altar uh, basin. He was every bit of it. He was a, it was all shadows of what Christ would be in fulfillment, in substance, according to Colossians chapter 2. That is so beautiful. So, one of, the, one of the words, again, talked about the mercy seat. Other forms of the word group were translated as to make atonement or in reference to the day of atonement. And there's another theological term that we don't hear a lot outside of time in the Bible, right? Atonement. Well, this probably explains why the NIV translates uh, Romans 3, verse 20 as the sacrifice of atonement because that's the way it is used so often in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Through a blood sacrifice being made, sins could be covered. They could be covered and the guilt removed. That's atonement. That's atonement. That's expiation, another theological term. Expiation and atonement dealt with the reparation made through a sacrifice so that the guilt could be covered so that God wouldn't strike the sinner dead. Now, again, I want to ask you to follow me at this point, because it could get, I don't know, maybe a little confusing, but it's well worth understanding what's going on here. So the basic meaning of the word propitiation, here it is for you, satisfaction or appeasement. That's the basic meaning of the word propitiation, to satisfy or to appease anger or wrath. Um, while the basic meaning of atonement and expiation is to extinguish the guilt incurred by breaking the law through reparation being made. Now those are two different things. And let me try to illustrate the difference between these words. Let's say that there's an industrial accident that occurs. And someone is injured in the course of his work and is partially paralyzed. The company is at fault because they didn't provide the necessary safety training or they didn't have the necessary safety equipment on hand. And it created the conditions where this man's health was at risk. 
So the company is held accountable for the man's injury by the court and, and, uh, and for his subsequent paralysis. He's paralyzed because of this accident. Therefore, the court awards the man a large sum of money to be paid by the company. Some of that could just be cost of living for the rest of his life. Some of it could be punitive damages. Large amount of money to take care of him for the rest of his life. And when the money is paid, the company has expiated or atoned for their wrongdoings. It no longer has any responsibility toward the man. It, it, it was a costly debt and they paid it and so expiation and atonement had, had taken place. Reparations had been made. But that doesn't say anything about how the man feels toward the company that caused his injury and subsequent paralysis. I mean, he may be filled with anger and resentment, even, even hatred, and he may spend the rest of his days abhorring the name of that company, even though all the money had been paid to him to take care of him for the rest of his life. The debt had been paid or expiated, an atonement had been made, but he himself had not been propitiated or satisfied or appeased. His injury would not allow him to forgive the company. He may never forgive them. See the difference between propitiation and atonement or expiation? One is reparation being made. The other deals with the feelings that are incurred through injury. So what Paul's saying here is that human sin had injured God. It had injured God, not like the, the man injured by you know, a piece of equipment or whatever, but it injured God because it was an offense to his character, to his righteousness, to his justice. Our sin is a violation of God's righteousness and his holiness and his justice and demands that we be judged in some way for that sin. In the blood sacrifice of Jesus, that judgment was met. Atonement was made. Expiation occurred. The guilt has been removed. But at the same time, the injury to God's person was also appeased or satisfied. He was propitiated in his wrath toward the sinner, and the sinner could be reconciled to God. This is beautiful. It's beautiful. And it should be noted here that propitiation is the one thing in our salvation that is directed toward God. He is the one that is propitiated. All the other parts of our salvation, redemption, justification, glorification, reconciliation, sanctification, all of the other elements of our salvation are all directed toward us. We are sanctified. We are we are justified, we are reconciled, we are, will be glorified, etc., etc. But God is the one who needed to be propitiated, not us. We are the one that brought about his need of being propitiated, his anger, his wrath, his holy justice being satisfied. Propitiation was all about God's holy wrath towards sin and it being satisfied. So in, in verse 25, what Paul is saying is that and then God in his mercy will to forgive sinful people in order, and in order for them to, to, to be forgiven and to it be done righteously. That is, without, without in any way condoning their sin, hmm, the full weight of God's righteous wrath 
was brought down on his own son in his sacrificial death. Listen to a quote by John Stott, one of the best books I've ever read theologically on, on the cross. It's called The Cross of Christ. Beautiful quote. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sin. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son, when he took our place and died for us. Wow! That's powerful. So God's holy wrath towards sin had to be satisfied, and the only way that it could be satisfied was through the sacrifice, a sacrifice that could atone and expiate the guilt of sinners, and that had to be the sacrifice of his only son. Why? Well, because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It could only cover it for a period of time. Read Hebrews 10, and it explains that in detail. Uh, you know, the, 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 the priests are constantly sacrificing animals, but the blood of bulls and goats and pigeons and doves, etc., could never take away the sin. It could only hide it. It could only cover it for a period of time. And in fact, those repeated sacrifices, blood sacrifices, was a reminder, was a reminder of the guilt of people rather than a freeing from guilt. It reminded them that they needed atonement, expiation on a regular basis. Only the blood of the perfect Son of God could satisfy God's holy wrath. Then and only then could God give us a right relationship with him. And notice that that verse ends with to be received by faith. Once again, Paul just throws it in. It's like a reminder of our inability to do anything to merit salvation. We receive every benefit, every single benefit of salvation through faith and faith alone. And even that faith is a gift from God. Now, the reason God did it this way, had to do it this way, where he put forth his son as a propitiation, propitiation through his sacrificial death, is explained by Paul. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had formerly passed over the sins. Now, we might ask, well, why, why would God's righteousness need to be demonstrated? I mean, doesn't everyone know that God is righteous? I mean, our God is righteous. He's holy. He's just. Why did it need to be demonstrated? Well, that's what Paul's saying. It did need to be explained. Paul explains that the reason God's righteousness needed a public demonstration through the death of Christ on our behalf was because of how he had dealt with sins in the past. Right? This was to show God's righteousness because in his, in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Now, that may appear to some like God didn't care about sins in the Old Testament. Of course, that would be foolish to think that since God is the one who required all the blood sacrifices to deal with uh, the covering of sin for a period of time. So Paul's not saying that. The necessity of blood sacrifice, you know, demonstrates, you know, God is very serious about sin. But the, the, the sacrifice of animals could never propitiate God's wrath towards sin. It would take the sacrifice 
of his only son to do that. And therefore to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Now when he says at the present time, what does he mean? The crucifixion of Christ, right? The, the time of Christ coming into the world, becoming the propitiation for our sins. So in order to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time, he, he put forward his son as a sacrifice for sins as the ultimate proof of his willingness to forgive sinners. And as the death of the Son of God, in that death, every sin ever committed was punished. Did you get that? I mean, my sins are plenty. I'm, I've lived a fairly long life now, almost 68. I've, I've committed a lot more sins than some of you that have lived lesser. Some of you are older and you've committed more sins. But that's just three or four people. Or let's say it's all of us. That's a whole lot of sins. But this is the sins of the world. We have an advocate with Father Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 says. So, in the death of his son, God punished every sin, and in this way, God's righteousness was cleared. It was vindicated. He is righteous. That's what this demonstration was all about. Now, could God have dealt with sin otherwise and, and been righteous? Well, absolutely. Absolutely, he could have. He, he could have poured out his wrath on every person who sinned when they sinned. You know, uh, story of Uzzah reaching out and touching the ark, you know, thinking he was doing a good thing, but it was a bad thing. And God struck him dead on the spot. Or Dathan and Abiram, and maybe you've read that recently as you're reading through the Old Testament. God opened up the ground and swallowed them, their families, their tents, everything. Or a plague that was sent and 23,000 died at one time. Or we could jump to the New Testament and Ananias and Sapphira who lied to God about how much they were donating to the work of ministry. And, and as soon as the lie came out of the mouth, God struck them dead. God would be righteous to do that. He could deal with sin that way. There would be a problem, however. There wouldn't be anyone left. There wouldn't be any people if that's the way that God righteously dealt with our sin. Uh, God chose a different way, a wonderful way, a wonderful way, a way in which he could be seen as righteous and still have people redeemed for his glory. And that's what Paul says. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So through his wrath being poured out on his son, God the Father showed his righteousness and showed how he could still be seen as righteous when he declared guilty sinners righteous. Wow. I know, that's deep. That's heavy. You've you got to ponder it a little bit to really soak it in. But boy, if you will, you'll be so thankful for the salvation that God has given us. The last few verses serve as a conclusion to what Paul is saying in this first part of the second section. And it uh, sets forth the result of the gospel of, of grace as we just looked at in verse 21 through 26. And it seems that Paul is directing his thoughts primarily towards the Jewish straw man still, right? 
because he speaks about law works. So what is what what becomes of our boasting? <laughs> it's excluded. Well, who boasted? The Jews did. They, they, we got a special relation with God. We're Abraham's descendants. We've got the law. We've been circumcised. They boasted, boasted, boasted. And so what becomes of the straw man? So what becomes of our boasting? And Paul says it's excluded, buddy. There is no boasting. There is no boasting. And then then. He, he goes on, uh, he says, by what kind of law then? This is the Jewish straw manning. What, what kind of law? By law of works? That's what they believed. He says, no, but by the law of faith. The law of faith. There is no boast when we realize that people are justified not by works of the law, but by God's grace and through faith. No boaster, no boaster will ever get into heaven. No one's going to say to God, <laughs> I got here on my own, didn't I? God says, yeah, you're not actually coming in here. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Depart to the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. So God has ordained faith as the sole condition receiving a right relationship with him. And, and, and to glory over one good, one's good, good works or law-keeping, it ruins the whole thing. Every time we boast in ourselves, man, that was a really good thing I did for that person. Well, you just lost that one. You just ruined the whole deal of what God's done for you. It's all grace. It's all grace. But I showed a lot of kindness to that person. That's right. That's good that you did. But you just lost the blessing of it by pointing it out. There's no boasting before God. It's all God's grace at work in us. When we boast, it's an affront to God. So by appealing to the truth that God is one in these last few verses, Paul is emphasizing that he employs one method and one method only to bring sinners into a right relationship with him. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. God is one. Faith comes to the circumcised by faith. Uh, or uh, Justification comes to the circumcised by faith. And it comes to the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. And so Paul asks one final question. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? That's what the, the Jewish straw man thought. You're overthrowing the whole deal with the law. And Paul says, by no means am I doing that. No way. Make anointo. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's like, that would just be weird to the Jewish straw man. You, you're saying that nothing to do with the law. Paul says, actually, I'm upholding the law. And what he means is that what he's been saying all along is consistent with the law because the law could only do one thing. It could show you that you were guilty and that you needed God to be propitiated toward your sin through a sacrifice by his grace, a gift given to us through the redemption that is in the blood of Christ. So the law being broken makes the cross of Christ a necessity, doesn't it? Our sin makes it a necessity. And one who sees the necessity of the cross will never believe, never believe that he can make himself approved by God by fulfilling the law's demands. If you understand your sin, you'll never think, I could be right with God by being good. He knows he can't. Faith is the only answer. So, final touchdown. There are two primary things that Paul is teaching in these verses, 321 through 
31 concerning justification. And the first of those is that no person is justified by the principle of law of works. That's the main first principle. No one can be justified by God by being good. The second is a person can only be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's simple. The faith that will give you a right relationship with God, however, is not merely knowing the facts about Jesus Christ. A lot of people can spew facts about Christ. Oh, yeah, I believe he's the Son of God. That's what, the, you know, I, that's what I was taught in church or whatever. Yeah, I believe Jesus is the Son of God and the, and the Savior. That's just spewing some facts, maybe. It, it, that is not the faith that gives you a right relationship with God. It's trusting the facts concerning what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. But really, it can't even stop there. We must also trust in Christ to save us from God's wrath and justify us before God. I mean, trusting in Christ means receiving the marvelous gift of God's grace in order for it to do anything for us. It is a gift that must be received. It's not a gift to you unless you receive it. Unless you acquire it, right? Through faith. If not received by faith, what are you? You're still in your sins. You're still condemned. And God's wrath will be poured out on you because you continually fall short of his glory. So the most critical question, we started this way several weeks ago with the start of this. The most critical question in life has to be, how can I be right with God? How can I be right with God? You can't be right with God through being religious, by doing good works, or by keeping God's law. You can only be right with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the question that we should make sure we've answered is, have we answered that most critical question how to be right with God? Are we right with God because we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if we have, let's rejoice in what God did to make, make it so that we could have a right relationship with him forever and ever. To him be the glory. Lord, we are thankful for this passage and we're thankful for the truth of the gospel. What a wonderful, wonderful message. Help us to not only rejoice If we know you through faith in Christ, help us not only to rejoice in this, what you've done for us personally, but help us to consider, as we were singing about earlier, the task that remains before us to share this message with others. Give us opportunities, help us take advantage of them, and share the good news with others to the glory of your name. Thanks for the food we're going to eat as well and fellowship around it. We give you praise for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.